stories of imagination are never far. They still reside in us, guiding us ever forward. Join us now as we journey forward into the past. And here is your host, J.C. Riddell. Hi folks, and welcome once again to another episode of Forward Into the Past. I'm J.C. Riday, your host and narrator, and today we're jumping right back into the latest installment of the 1915 public domain mystery, The Gordon Elopement, or Nick Carter's Three of a Kind. Nick Carter, of course, is a fictional character who first appeared in 1886 as a dime novel private detective. He quickly became one of the most popular characters in American fiction, and his adventures were read by millions of people around the world. Nick Carter's influence on the detective fiction genre is undeniable. He helped to popularize the genre and established many of the conventions that are still used today. One of the most important things that Nick Carter did was to create a new type of detective hero. Before Carter, Detectives were often portrayed as eccentric or even supernatural figures. Nick Carter, on the other hand, was a down-to-earth, ordinary man who used his intelligence and skills to solve crimes. This made him more relatable to readers, and it helped to make detective fiction more popular. Nick Carter also helped to establish some of the key conventions of detective fiction. For example, He often used disguises to infiltrate criminal organizations. He also used forensic evidence to solve crimes, and he often had to deal with complex plots and double crosses. These conventions have been used by many other detective fiction writers, and they continue to be used to this very day. In addition to his influence on the detective fiction genre, Nick Carter also had a significant impact on popular culture. He was featured in comic strips, comic books, radio dramas, and even films. He was also a popular subject of merchandise, and his image was used to sell everything from cigarettes to chewing gum. Nick Carter's popularity may have declined in recent years, but his influence on the detective fiction genre is undeniable. He helped to popularize the genre and establish many of the conventions that are still used today. He is a true icon of detective fiction, and his legacy will continue to be felt for many years to come. And speaking of continuing, let's continue on with the latest episode of The Gordon Elopement, or Nick Carter's Three of a Kind. Chapter 5. The Man with a Dog Nick Carter had a keen eye for faces, remarkably keen, and that of the man encountered when he was returning to the Gordon residence did not appeal favorably to the discerning detective. It was an angular, swarthy face, with a sinister expression accentuated by several days' growth of stubby beard and a certain sly, shifty light in the fellow's eyes aroused in Nick a feeling of suspicion. Suppressing any betrayal of it, nevertheless, he exhibited an immediate interest in the blood-stained articles the man was displaying, asking earnestly, while he subdued Patsy Garvin with a significant nudge. "'Where did you find these, my man?' "'Twasn't me as found him,' was the quick reply. "'Ginger found him. He knows them out. He's got a scent like a bull moose in the hunting season. 
I pulled them out from under a log in some underbrush after Ginger found them. How long ago was that? asked Nick. Less than half an hour ago. And how far from here? Less than a mile. I reckoned a murder. One moment, Nick interposed. What is your name? Pete Henley. I live off yonder in the crossroad apiece. I was gunning for birds across the pond when I struck this sort of game. Did you find any other evidence of a murder? That's what, nodded Henley. Blood on the grass and bushes. Some are trampled down and a lot of footprints and heel holes in the ground point to an ugly fight. I see, said Nick gravely. That does look bad. I did not wait to hunt for the girl's body, Henley went on with grim glibness. It might be in the pond. I reckon I'd better rush these things to Bailey, the constable, and then show him where Ginger found them. Nick was quick to notice that the man invariably attributed the discovery to his dog rather than taking it upon himself, from which there appeared to be only one logical deduction, that Henley had some covert reason for doing so. You can do better, Mr. Henley, than to take these to the constable, said Nick, who had merely glanced at the blood-stained articles. How's that? questioned Henley. I am a New York detective, Nick Carter and I am already investigating the disappearance of the two persons you claim to have seen last evening, Nick explained agreeably. The man is Arthur Gordon, the banker, and the girl is his stenographer, Pauline Perrault. She is known to have worn a hat and jacket like these yesterday afternoon. Besides, her initials are on the handkerchief. Henley's jaw sagged perceptively when he heard the detective's name. I don't know about that, he demurred. Do you mean you want me to go with you? Certainly said Nick in a friendly fashion. I would not permit Constable Bailey to interfere with my work on the case. I never allow anything of that kind. Yeah, but he might... Never mind Bailey, Nick insisted. I will take charge of these articles, and I may want you to aid me further. So, get in the car with us, Henley, and go to the Gordon place. There will be something in it for you if you help us solve this mystery. There is room for your dog also. Tumble in with him. I don't know. Nonsense. You want to see justice done, don't you? Nick demanded. Well, if you don't... Uh, yes, yeah, sure, Henley now cried, as if suddenly hit with an idea that a persistent refusal would occasion suspicion. That's just what I want. Uh, that's why I was hiking to see the constable. But I'll go with you, Mr. Carter, and later we'll show you where Ginger found these things, if you say so. That's precisely what I want, Mr. Henley. He's got some nose, this dog, Henley added, while he seized the scrawny animal and tossed him into the car. Some nose, that's what he's got. Ginger can't be beat. He looks bright and intelligent, Nick allowed pleasantly. Uh, sit in front with the chauffeur, Henley, but put the articles Ginger found into the tonneau. That's the stuff. I'll examine them after we reach the Gordon place. Let her go lively, Danny. The remaining distance was speedily covered, with merely cursory inquiries and remarks by the detective, well calculated to relieve Henley of any misgivings. Upon arriving at the house, however, he turned to Patsy and said, Go in ahead and tell Mr. Strickland and Wilhelmina that they must go upstairs and remain there until I send for them. I don't want them butting in. You need not explain in just those words, however. I'm wise, Chief, said Patsy, springing from the car. I'll clear the field for you. Leave the car here, Dad, and take Henley and the dog around to the kitchen, Nick then directed. Have the cook give Ginger some meat. Uh, you'll kindly wait there till I'm ready to talk with you, Henley, won't you? Sure thing, Mr. Carter, if you say so. Henley quickly consented. Good enough. I'm right here to lend you a hand. Nick detected in the fellow's narrow eyes, nevertheless, that same sly and shifty gleam he at first had noticed, a look that seemed to give the lie to his apparently agreeable consent. 
Patsy returned a moment later to assist in taking the various articles into the house, stating that Wilhelmina and her uncle had complied with the detective's request. It was nearly one o'clock when Chick Carter arrived in a taxicab, directing the chauffeur to wait, and Patsy appeared at the door to admit him. Gee whiz, he said quietly. You're just in time. Time for what? Chick questioned. To see the chief cut loose, said Patsy. Talk about having a long head. No four-footed beast has got anything on him, ears included. Yeah, I'm well aware of that, Patsy, already. But this yanks the bun. <laughs> Wait a bit and you'll see. Come into the library. Nick then had been studying the evidence he had found for nearly half an hour, but he really had mentioned to Patsy only a few of his discoveries and deductions, being too absorbed in the work to discuss it. With a lens in his hand and a frown on his intent, clean-cut face, he was bending over a table on which the various articles had been placed, and which gave Chick some little surprise when he saw them. Great guns, said he, approaching. Are you starting a second-hand clothing store? Not by a long chalk, said Nick. I'm starting a ball rolling that will probably crush a gang of crooks. Sit down. Have you been to Gordon's office? Certainly. What have you learned? Close the door again, Patsy. Chick then made his report in detail, adding confidently, Take it from me, Nick. Pauline Perot is a remarkably clever crook. I'll wager my pile that she is the one who robbed the vault in spite of Gordon's mysterious absence and his suspected relations with her. Nick smiled a bit oddly. Have a look at this evidence, Chick, while I tell you where we found it. He replied, You may change your mind. Chick hastened to comply, while Nick mentioned all of the essential points in the case as thus far presented. Chick's face became more gray while he looked and listened. He twice read the letter found in Pauline Perrault's wastebasket, bearing Gordon's signature, and then he glanced at the blood-stained garments she was known to have worn when last seen with him. By Jove, I may be wrong after all, he said seriously. The case looks different to me. It must have been Gordon himself who took the bonds and money from the vault. Are you sure this is his writing? Here is a specimen of his writing, said Nick, taking a letter from the library desk. Compare them. Chapter 6 Nick Carter's Fine Work Chick Carter was not long in coming to a conclusion concerning the two letters Nick had submitted to him. By Jove, the writing appears to be identical, said he, after a careful inspection. If this one in French is a forgery, Nick, it's a mighty clever one. Don't overlook something, said Nick, smiling a bit oddly. What's that? You already have sized up Pauline Perrault as a clever crook. That's true, Chick admitted. In proof of it, assuming this Gordon letter to be genuine, it shows plainly that she has involved him in some kind of a desperate situation, so desperate that he evidently consented to elope with her, despite that he closes by intimating that he might attempt to kill her. Obviously, Nick agreed. Has he done it? Chick glanced at the blood-stained hat, jacket, and handkerchief. Did he really go to the limit and execute his threat? These things certainly point to that. Combined with all of the other circumstances, Nick, it establishes an almost sure case of murder. One that, in case Gordon cannot be found, would convince a court and jury? Well, surely. Suppose the body should not be found, suggested Nick. I think the case would still stand. Chick replied. A jury would surely convict on such circumstantial evidence as this. Nick smiled again. And that's why I have dug into it for all I'm worth, he said dryly. I will show you a few points that you fail to detect. What do you mean? These few hairs, Chick, to begin with, said Nick, taking them from a scrap of paper on which he had placed them. 
Mrs. Lord told me that Pauline Perrault had stolen a brush and comb. That suggested something to me. What was that? A hairbrush cannot be entirely cleaned of all the hairs it takes in among its bristles. I reasoned that Pauline Perrault decided that it was much easier to steal the brush than to clean it, and less dangerous than to leave it in her chamber. That set me to hunting for hairs on the rug and carpet. I found these. The devil always leaves a gapway open. What about them? Chick questioned a bit perplexedly. Use my lens, said Nick. Observe that they are exceedingly dry, having none of the oily gloss and pliability of hairs fresh from one's head. Notice also the tiny speck on the end of the longest one. It looks like the root of the hair. I see. Ah, but it is not, Nick quickly added. It is much too hard and brittle. So what do you make of it? Instead of a root, Chick, it's a speck of glue. By Jove, that is significant, Chick muttered. In that case, then, Pauline Perrault probably wears a wig. Gee, that's a cinch, declared Patsy from the opposite side of the table. Have you other reasons for thinking so, Nick? Chick questioned. Yes. Namely, notice these undergarments and stockings, said Nick. All of them are new, or very nearly so. I am convinced that none of them have been worn. Why are you so sure of it? Here are Pauline's button boots, Nick went on. Compare the size with the size of the stockings. The stockings are two sizes larger than the boots. Who ever heard of a girl buying hosiery larger than her shoes? By Jove, you are right, said Chick, carefully inspecting both. It was a mistake she made. Another devil's gapway. And you infer from this that she has worn none of the other garments? I am sure of it. But why, then, did she have them in her possession? Chick demanded, racking his brain to fathom it. Why did she leave them in her bureau drawer? She can have only one logical reason, Chick, consistent with all of the other circumstances, Nick replied. She did not buy them to wear. Though she wore feminine outside garments, she preferred another kind next to her evil skin. She left these in her bureau, Chick, only that persons having occasion to seek her or investigate her conduct might not for a moment suspect that Pauline Perrault is not a woman. Not a woman? echoed Chick with a gasp of surprise. That's what I said, Nick nodded. But you don't for a moment suspect her of being a man? That is precisely what I suspect. Huh, nonsense! Remember that she has for several months been employed as Gordon's stenographer, and that she— Wait a bit, Nick interrupted. We quite frequently know of women masquerading as men. Take the case of Murray Hall, who, for a quarter of a century, wore only male attire, blinding all with whom she associated, and the secret of her sex was not discovered until after she died. Yes, I know about that, Nick, but I know what you would say, Nick again interrupted. But given the right type of magic, the reverse subterfuge would be just as feasible. A man with an effeminate, mobile, and beardless face, a man with medium figure and consistent voice, together with the subtle art required for such an assumption. We have met just that type of man, Chick, both of us. I cannot recall him, Chick declared. Whom do you mean? The man of whom Wilhelmina Strickland has been living in fear since he, by this same artifice, made his escape from a prison hospital, Nick replied. The man of whom, though unidentified when she saw him in female attire, she felt an immediate aversion and dread that is, upon first seeing Pauline Perrault. Oh, I see. Mina Strickland's sensitive nature and feminine intuition 
were more keen than her eyes, Nick added. They were far more keen than the eyes of Arthur Gordon. The man I mean, Chick, is a past master of the art of personal disguise and character assumption, and so clever and versatile a crook that for years he eluded the European police and... Oh, I've gotcha, Chick interrupted. You mean Mortimer Deland. Exactly. He and Pauline Perrault are one and the same? As sure as you're a foot high. This French letter, then, is a forgery? Undoubtedly, said Nick. Deland is an expert penman. We long have known that. He is wanted in Paris for forging the signature of the prefect of police, a trick by which he escaped from brief custom. Also the letter sent to Miss Strickland? A forgery chick, surely. You may be right, by Jove, though it seems almost incredible, said Chick. We shall find I am right, replied the detective confidently. My money goes on that, chief. But what's the game aside from the robbery? Chick questioned, pointing to the blood-stained articles. What's the meaning of these? That is what we must discover, as well as the present whereabouts of Deland and his confederates, said Nick. Arthur Gordon undoubtedly is a prisoner in their clutches. He knows nothing about the robbery, nor about the case, as we now see it. So you reason that he was in some way trapped by the supposed Pauline Perrault, and it's up to us to discover how, Nick went on. This evidence has obviously been planted only to denote that Gordon has killed his supposed female stenographer. Deland's deeper game is, I suspect, to subsequently bleed wealthy old Rudolf Strickland out of more money by approaching him in some crafty way with an offer to produce Gordon and positive evidence of his innocence. Gee whiz, that looks dead right to me, put in Patsy. Mr. Strickland would give up handsomely for the sake of his niece and Mr. Gordon. Undoubtedly in such circumstances, Nick nodded. He would, moreover, be a very easy mark. By the way, Chick, did you verify Beckwith's statements by talking with Dayton? Yes, of course, said Chick. He corroborated what Beckwith had told me. And he is the one man, the only one, who saw Gordon departing with a suitcase, eh? What do you make of that? questioned Chick, noting Nick's subtle intonation. Another devil's gapway, Nick dryly declared. It was thought necessary by Deland to have it appear that Gordon carried away the money and bonds in a suitcase. Ah, I see now. With that object in view, Pauline Perrault artfully detained him in his office until all others had gone. If Gordon knew nothing about this foul business, however, it is safe to say that he had no suitcase when he left his office. We know that he had none when he arrived here, or Miss Strickland would have informed us. Holy smoke! cried Patsy. In that case, then, Dayton must be one of Deland's confederates. That is the very point, Patsy, said Nick. By Jove, he should be watched, then, said Chick. There would be something in that. I think so, too, Nick quickly agreed. You return to town, therefore, and try to pick him up before he leaves his office. Get on his trail by some means, if possible, and don't lose sight of him. Leave him to me, Nick. In the meantime, with Patsy to help me, I have other fish to fry. What do you mean? The man with the dog, Ginger. Henley? questioned Chick. Why do you suspect him? First, because this evidence, if planted, was discovered so quickly after the seeming murder, said Nick, pointing to the blood-stained articles. It's long odds that, in a genuine case of murder, it would not have been found within a few hours of the crime. That's true, Chick quickly admitted. Second, because Henley is the man who found it. He don't look good to me, Nick added. He has a bad eye. Besides, 
he has been very careful when speaking of the discovery to attribute it to his dog, which convinces me that he fears suspicion if he takes it upon himself. Gee, I thought of that, declared Patsy. You've hit the nail right on the head, Chief, for fair. I think that these crooks, in order to expedite matters and create a general belief that Gordon has murdered Pauline Perot, planted this evidence, and probably more, and immediately started Henley with it to inform the constable, aiming to get in their work on old Mr. Strickland as soon as possible. I saw that Henley was a bit set back when he discovered my identity, and that I already was at work on the case. I noticed that too, Chief, put in Patsy. Henley decided to seize the bull by the horns, however, pretended he wanted to aid me, and I think now he has something up his sleeve, Nick added. I'm going to give him a chance to show his hat. How so? Chick questioned. I'm not sure yet what I shall frame up. Be that as it may, Chick, you hike back to town and get after Dayton. It's dollar to fried holes that he has a hand in this game. Use your own judgment as to the best course to shape, and leave Patsy and me to tie knots in this end of the string. That's all for the present. Enough said, too, Nick, replied Chick, seizing his hand. You have pulled off a clever bit of work, remarkably clever, and we're now right in line to deliver the goods. Leave Dayton to me. I'll get him. Chick did not wait for an answer. He hurried out of the house and started for town in the taxicab. Is it possible that Pauline Perrault and Mortimer Deland are one and the same person? Is Deland really trying to steal all of old Mr. Strickland's money yet again? And what, if anything, does Henley, the man with the dog, know about any of this? Be with us next episode, faithful listeners, as we continue the mystery of The Gordon Elopement, or Nick Carter's Three of a Kind. I definitely was suspecting Mortimer Deland to reappear sooner than later. But then again, I already knew that he was a part of this story arc. Well, be that as it may, it's always a thrill when Nick figures out stuff from a bunch of clues. I have to admit, I love narrating these stories. Hey friends, if you haven't already done so, may I suggest you decide to become a monthly supporter of the show. By becoming a monthly supporter, you ensure that I can continue narrating stories like this for a long time to come, and there are hundreds of Nick Carter stories I want to take a crack at. Now remember, for Halloween and Christmas time, I will again be reading a few choice pieces from the vaults of public domain. A few known, but some decidedly unknown, well, at least until now. But without your help, it will be harder to continue to do so. This is absolutely a labor of love at this point, and I'll keep doing it for the foreseeable future. But it does make things easier when I know that it's worth it. So do me a favor, friends. Follow the link on your favorite podcast app that says something to the effect of support the show or visit the podcast website. Once again, that's forwardintothepastpodcast.com and then click on that big yellow button with a cup on it. That'll take you to my Buy Me a Coffee page where you can either make a one-time donation or support me with a monthly membership donation of 5 7 or $10 a month. That's it. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. Okay, I can't believe I just said that. And apparently I've rambled long enough. Okay. Well, until next time, friends, thanks for listening, keep sharing the stories, and be a good human. <laughs> Bye for now. <laughs>